Good morning, everybody. We continue our series in Hebrews at chapter 12 today, beginning at verse 3. And then Paul's going to speak to us on those verses. So if you've got your Bible, chapter 12 and verse 3. Here we go. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is laid may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
there's something amazing about mountains. When my wife and I spent some time traveling around Europe, every time we talk about it and we think about it, we remember and we reflect on it, the country that always comes to our mind is the country of Switzerland. We were awestruck at how you could get off the train in that country, no matter where you are, it seemed, and your eyes immediately went up. <laughs> they just looked straight up towards the top of these snow-capped mountains. I smile when I remember that when we got to a backpackers in uh, Switzerland, and they said, oh, you know, where are you from? I said, well, from Australia. And they said, well, you've got some good mountains in Australia. And I remember kind of looking out the window and looking back at them with a bit of a smile saying, our mountains are nothing like your mountains. But whatever mountains you look at, they have a way of shifting our gaze upwards. They draw you up to the top of their peaks and they give you a sense of perspective and appreciation for something better and something greater than ourselves. So it should be no surprise that the Bible uses the idea of mountains to highlight the, the otherness of God and to generate awe amongst his people. There are many famous mountains that are referred to in the Bible. You've got Mount Ararat, you've got Mount Moriah, you've got Mount Sinai, which we'll talk about later on. These mountains represented the presence of God. They represented the, the covenants of God. They represented an awe of God and they created a sense of the otherness of God. In doing so, they shift our gaze upwards towards him. Earlier this week, I read that the word mountain is actually referred to in the Bible more than the words cross, grace, and gospel put together. God uses mountains to lift our gaze up towards him. Why is it important as Christians that we lift our gaze upwards? Because when we face opposition or struggles or difficulties, the temptation and our gaze quickly will naturally focus on ourself, focus on our own problems and our own circumstances. We struggle to look past those obstacles and so easily become overwhelmed and consumed by them. They take over our gaze and become all that we see. And the Hebrew church was a church that was facing significant hardship and opposition. But God does not want our focus to be on ourselves or our circumstances, but on him as a God who is above all of those things and who is in sovereign control over all of those things. You see, this call to, to shift our gaze upwards is right throughout Hebrews 12, which we're going to be reflecting on this week. It starts by following on from verse 1 and 2, where Mike talked about last week, about the urge to fix our eyes on Jesus as he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God up in the heavenly places. But it continues on in verse 3 to 13, where we're going to pick things up this week as we are encouraged to, fix, to lift our gaze and to fix our eyes on God's purposes. And then in verse 14 to 29 of Hebrews 12, we are encouraged to, to fix our gaze on God's coming judgment, to fix our gaze on his purposes and to fix our gaze on his coming judgment. And as the author brings us to the foot of another mountain, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, 
to remind us of the reality of that coming judgment and the need to shift our gaze upwards towards him. And as we fix our gaze on him, it not only helps us to endure through hardships and difficulties, but it motivates us to live well in the midst of those hardships and to bring us to a place of worship. So let's start by looking at verse 3 to 13, fixing our eyes on God's purposes. And from the very first verse here in verse 3, the author introduces the theme of endurance and opposition and of not losing heart. It says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The author knows that this was a time for the Hebrew church to endure through its hardships and persecution. And so they're urged to consider Christ as their example in that regard, the one who faced opposition relentlessly during his time on earth from those around him. So now is a time for them to consider him and to fix their gaze on him. However, the encouragement that then follows is a little hard to see as encouragement at first. The author says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, and following on from verse 3, where it's talking about Jesus' opposition from sinners, it seems this sin is more likely to refer to a struggle against external sin or opposition to the gospel and to the work of God. In, your, in that struggle rather than a personal struggle or failing with sin, in that kind of struggle, the author says you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. There's a continuing comparison going on with Jesus here. Jesus' struggle with opposition did absolutely result in the shedding of his blood as he shed that blood on the cross as a sacrifice on our behalf. It cost him his life. Now, the author is saying, your hardships, church, are not like that. They will never be quite like that. So if Jesus endured even to death, so we can endure the hardships that we face here and now. Now, we need to remember, though, it's a lot easier to talk about enduring through hardships than it is to live it. It's one thing to say, Jesus did it, and so you can do it. But the challenge of living that out and having that mindset is extremely hard. And the author acknowledges this by reminding them of what he describes as a word of encouragement, which is provided to us by God as a father addresses a son, it says. Now, it's not really the word of encouragement that you might expect, but when understood in its context, it absolutely provides encouragement to us during times of hardship. And it's this encouragement which the author says in verse 5, the Hebrew church had, had completely forgotten. And in some ways, I'm sure we as a church have forgotten it too. The word of encouragement that the author points to is a quote that's found in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 to 12, where it says, My son... Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. 
In other words, we don't need to lose heart in the midst of our hardships because as it says immediately after this quote from Proverbs, which the author brings in, endure hardship as a discipline. Now, how is that a word of encouragement, right? Well, I think to answer that question, we need to have a good understanding of what this word discipline is referring to. I think the image that immediately comes to our mind is punishment. We think of being disciplined or punished for something we have done wrong. When I was a child and I disobeyed my parents, I would absolutely be punished for it, as you would expect. And although that concept can't be excluded entirely from the quote that's used in Proverbs here, as it refers to chastening of children, it's not the central focus of this chapter. The word discipline in this chapter is primarily intended to point towards, and this word has a connotation of, a whole instruction and training of children. It's a leading and guiding and instructing them towards maturity. And you can see this, by the way, the same Greek word for discipline is often translated in other New Testament verses as training. The author is saying that the church can in fact be encouraged by their hardship because God is doing a work. He's using it to train and instruct and mature and refine them as a church, as a father would a child. And it's this idea that the author then builds on in verse 7 to 11. He explains further what this, how this concept of discipline should in fact be a word of encouragement for the church. And the first point he says in verse 7 to 8 is that God's discipline confirms our identity as his children. In verse 7, the author makes the point that the discipline, that discipline is part of God treating you as his very own children. You can see this context by the way the author is quoting from Proverbs. Proverbs was a, a book or a letter of instruction and wisdom from a father to a son. And so the author is adopting that same context here by reminding the church that they were sons and daughters of the living God and they've now been accepted and adopted into part of his family through their faith in Christ. And so God will now treat them as one of his very own children. All parents discipline their children, right? They train them and instruct them in the way that they should go. They lead them in instruction. They, they guide their choices and their character. And so if God did not do the same, it says he would not be treating us as legitimate or genuine, genuine part of his family. It's important for us to remember this because it's easy to feel forgotten by God during times of hardship. When things get hard, we can feel abandoned. We can feel cast aside. We can feel unheard or alone. But the presence of hardship and difficulties does not mean the absence of God. They can actually serve to testify to the legitimacy of our place in his family as true sons and daughters of the living God. His love is not withheld from us. It is actually affirmed during seasons of difficulty. Now you might say, well, how is being disciplined 
an act of love. And the author tells us in verse 9 to 11 that it's about understanding the purpose behind that discipline. It's shifting our gaze up towards his greater purposes. For in verse 10 it says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. It's about bringing us further down the road towards his holiness. Now the author acknowledges in verse 11 that that process is a difficult one. It's not an easy one to endure. The author acknowledges it's not a pleasant process. It's in fact a painful one. And all hardships involve pain and hurt and difficulty in one form or another. But the hope is that later on, as it says in verse 11, later on it will produce a harvest. It'll produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. God understands that discipline is a painful part of our sanctification. But we're not called to understand what God is doing here and there, right in the midst of our suffering and hardship, particularly when it feels undeserved or, or unrelenting or even arbitrary. We're instead called to endure by having faith that God has a purpose in it. We're called to endure by believing in the truth that he still loves us as part of his family. And we're called to endure by knowing in our hearts that later on, at some point in the future, our training and refining through these moments will conform us more and more into the image of Christ so that we are a better reflection of his holiness and that we produce a harvest of righteousness. The hardships we face are not arbitrary. They are not revenge or retribution from an angry God. They are not intended to overwhelm or consume us. Our hardships are under the control of God and are allowed by God as a discipline to train and lead us towards righteousness. So how do we respond during times of hardship? Well, let's look at what the author says in verse 12 to 13. There's a great section here. It says, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level the paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Those verses draw on quotes from both Isaiah 35 verse 3 and Proverbs 4 verse 26 and 27. And there's a great acknowledgement in these verses that we can feel feeble and weak and lame during times of hardships. These are difficult times and seasons. But we're called to strengthen or endure during those seasons. But when you look at the context of Isaiah 35 in particular, which the author is drawing on here, the strength of the people was not found in themselves. They didn't have to look inside them and find a strength which they felt did not exist. The strength of their people was found by looking upward and looking forward to the coming salvation and deliverance of God. And we too can find strength as we fix our gaze up onto God in the midst of our hardship. As we fix our gaze up to his love and his purposes as we fix our gaze up 
on our identity as a child of God, and we fix our gaze up on the eternal hope and salvation that we have in him. For he is the one who strengthens us to endure during times of hardship. And when we fix our eyes on those things during time when life hurts, we will not be broken by those seasons, but rather healed. The first truth here is that fixing our eyes on the purposes of God encourages us to endure through hardships. I wonder what hardships you might be facing at the moment. I wonder how you might be able to see God at work training and refining and moulding you in the midst of those hardships. How are you being called to endure and not lose heart because God is trying to make you and mould you into something better, something more like him? During times of hardships, the more we focus on ourselves and our circumstances, the more they will consume us, but the more we, we lift our eyes above them to our heavenly Father and believe that his love is true and unfailing and that the time of his salvation will come whether in this life or the next, then he gives us the strength to endure and we become willing to let God go to work on us. So we've fixed our eyes on God's purposes. Having reflected on that, the author then shifts our focus so that the church is encouraged to live well in the midst of these hardships and the way he does that is by urging them to shift their, eyes, their gaze up to the coming judgment of God. So what instructions does the author give regarding the lives, how, that, how, how we should live during these seasons of hardship? The first thing the church is encouraged to be is holy in verse 14. It says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, it says, no one will see the Lord. Holiness is a key attribute of the Christian life because it reflects the holiness of God himself. But it's an attribute that ought to be lived by the church and not just claimed by the church. It should be evident in our speech and in our thoughts and in the way we engage with those around us. Now, the second instruction for the church is then more focused on others. It's others focused in verse 15. For the church, it says, is called to see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That idea of falling short has a sense of falling short of the finish line or, or failing to achieve the destination or the goal. So when a person falls short of God's grace, it's as though they, they fall short of entering into that grace. They fall short of embracing the salvation that is otherwise theirs through Christ. Now we know that salvation is ultimately the work of God. But as a church, we are called to make every effort to point and encourage people towards the saving grace of God. And as a key part of encouraging people towards the saving grace of God, a key part of that is guarding them against those things which will turn them away from God and hold them back. And there's three of those things which are referred to in verse 15 to 17. The first of them is idolatry. 
In the second half of verse 15, it says, See to it that there is no, that no root of bitterness grows up and cause trouble and defile many. This reference to a root of bitterness actually links back to Deuteronomy 29 verse 18, where it refers to a root of bitter poison amongst God's people. And that root of bitter poison is a person which springs up to lead the God's people away from him and to the worship of other gods towards idols. Why are they like bitter poison? Because poison causes death, doesn't it? And so does idolatry when it leads people into sin and turns them away from the grace of God. So we're to guard against idolatry. The second thing is immorality. Verse 16 gives the church a mandate to guard against immorality, and in particular, sexual immorality. Like the worship of anything other than God turns people's hearts away from him, so do our choices to engage in conduct which is contrary to God's will or design. And the last focus in these verses I've described as best I could as worldliness as it looks at the example of Esau in verse 16 and 17. Some of you will be familiar with the narrative in Genesis 25 of Esau and Jacob. Esau returned hungry from having been hunting and he agreed to exchange his inheritance as the older son for some food that was prepared by his twin brother Jacob. He says, look, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Esau, as the firstborn, was entitled to a unique blessing and inheritance, but he exchanged it for temporary relief and satisfaction. An eternal blessing exchanged for something of temporary value. In our moment of hardship, we're called to make a different choice, aren't we? To be godly rather than worldly, to choose the things of God rather than the things of this world, to place a high value on God. And we are called to encourage those around us to make the same choice. Guard against idolatry, guard against immorality, guard against worldliness and the pursuit of anything other than God. Even in the midst of a season of hardship and difficulty, as a church, we're called to be holy and to work together as a community of believers to see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God by turning towards idolatry and immorality and worldliness and the pursuit of all things other than God. And the way the author encourages the church to have a sense of urgency around this call is again by shifting their gaze upwards. And this time it is to the reality of God's coming judgment by bringing us to the feet of two significant mountains. The first mountain that the author takes us to is Mount Sinai in verses 18 to 21. These verses take us back to the scene in Exodus 19, which some of us may be familiar with as we journey through Exodus as a church earlier this year. In that scene, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to be with God, while the people are told to, to consecrate themselves. And there were, there were limits that were placed around the mountains so that they would keep their distance. No one could go near the mountain or touch it or they would die. It says the mountain was covered with smoke. God descended down on it with fire. It, it shook the earth. 
It trembled all things that were around it as it shook violently and we're told there was a sound of trumpets. It's an incredible scene. And even Moses, the great mediator of the, pe of the people, for the people, it says in, in here in chapter 12, it says that he, was, he too was left trembling in fear. It's a vivid picture of the holiness of God. The people are kept separate from God for their own safety. For an unholy people cannot be in the presence of a holy God and expect to live. No one was exempt. No one was safe. All found themselves in awe and reverent fear of God. As David says in Psalm 24 verse 3, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The answer was no one. Even their mediator in Moses was left trembling in fear. But the author reminds us that we have come to a different mountain than Mount Sinai. In verse 22 to 24, we're told that we've come to a better mountain, Mount Zion. This mountain is not a physical mountain, it's described as a heavenly city. Instead of the sound of trumpet, that sound is replaced with the chorus of angels in worship of God. It's not a mountain that's just for Israel. This mountain, it says, is for all believers whose names are written in heaven. All who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. God is still present as the judge of all, it says, on this mountain. But on this mountain, God's people no longer need to fear because they have been declared righteous by Jesus, our better mediator, and the one whose blood, it says, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, those who are familiar with the narrative of Cain and Abel will recognize that Abel's blood was innocent blood. But it cried out to God to judge and punish the guilt of man. Whereas the blood of Jesus is also innocent blood. But it cries out for grace and forgiveness at the time of judgment. Jesus' blood is on our hands because of our own sin. Yet that blood cries out on our behalf for mercy and grace. And so speaks a much better word than the blood of Abel. At Mount Sinai, God's people were kept safe by staying away. At the foot of Mount Zion, God's people are kept safe by entering into the presence of God through the blood of the Lamb. So with our gaze lifted up to the beauty of Mount Zion, the author then gives us both a warning and a promise in the last few verses. The warning is clear. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Like God's voice resounded from, Zion, from Mount Sinai as a warning on earth, so we are urged not to turn our back on the one who now speaks to us from the heavenly realms, from Mount Zion. We're called to listen to that voice, to take hold of that voice, to take it in and let it grip our hearts so that we flee from idolatry, so that we flee from immorality, so that we turn from worldliness and we desire the things of God over the temporary things of this world. 
The warning is to listen. Do not refuse him who speaks. And I wonder what word might be being spoken to you as you reflect on this chapter yourself that he wants you to listen to and take to heart. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. But that sober warning is then followed by a promise. The incredible promise that for those who place their faith in the saving power of Jesus' blood, the blood that speaks a much better word than the blood of Abel, they will have a place in the kingdom of God, which it says will never be shaken. When all that is temporary is stripped away, our place on Mount Zion in the heavenly city will remain firm. Our inheritance given to us by God will be an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. And when we pause to reflect on that promise and on the reality of God's coming judgment and the unshakable security of our place in his kingdom, what can we do but, as it says in verse 28, be thankful and worship God with reverence and awe. When we look forward to that time when the noise and the pain and the hurt of this world will be taken away, when we look forward to that with eager expectation and hope, the time when all that remains is the glory of God, what can we do but worship the God of the heavens and the earth fixing our gaze on god's coming judgment leads us to worship the more we shift our gaze the more we fix our eyes on the reality that his time of judgment is coming the less we see our own hurt and our hardships and struggles, the less we are drawn into the traps of idolatry or immorality or worldliness, for our eyes and hearts are instead filled with praise and worship for our God. And all we can do is exactly what we're called to do back in verse 14 and 15, where it says, be holy in the here and now and see to it that you use every breath that you have so that no one might short, fall short of God's grace on that time, on that day. So how might God want to shift our eyes upwards during this season? Upwards towards his purposes, so that we might endure during times of hardship. And upwards towards his coming judgment so that we might instead be led to worship and to st strive to live well during the seasons that we have here and now. May our eyes and our hearts be captured by the God who is above all things. And may we endure hardship as a discipline as we hold on to God's greater purposes. And may we live well during these days as we keep our gaze on his coming judgment. For the time is coming when the heavens and the earth will tremble with the glory of the Lord. 
but on that day, our place on the greatest mountain of all, Mount Zion, will never be moved. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are a great God who is above all things. Lord, we thank you that you have a greater purpose in all which goes on here on earth. Lord, we thank you that we can endure hardship as a discipline, knowing that it is part of refining and training us as people, and that you will give us the strength to endure the more we fix our eyes on you. Lord, help us to always keep our gaze firmly fixed on the prize and firmly fixed on your coming judgment so that we might make the most of today, to live holy lives and to see to it that no one might fall short of your grace. Lord, we pray this now as a church and said, Amen.